Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Navajo County Deputy Sheriff Chuck Ellison was sitting down to eat dinner with his wife when the telephone rang. The voice on the other end was hard to read, both frantic and oddly hesitant at the same time. Ellison asked the caller to calm down and start again by telling him who he was. It was Kenny Peterson, came the speedy reply, and they needed the police right away. As Peterson went on to explain, he and his Forestry Service co-workers had been clearing a section of Arizona's Apache Sitgreaves Forest earlier that night when something inexplicable had occurred, and now one of their crew was missing. But when Ellison pushed for more details, Peterson paused for a moment before replying that perhaps it would be better if they could explain it to him in person. Ten minutes later, After apologising to his wife for having to leave so suddenly, Ellison pulled into the parking lot of Wilbur's Market Shopping Centre in Haber, a small junction town about 150 miles northeast of Phoenix, Arizona, where he'd agreed to meet Kenny. It didn't take long for the deputy to spot the man and his colleagues, Mike Rogers, John Goulet, Alan Dallas, Dwayne Smith and Steve Pearce, all gathered together in an anxious huddle by the entrance, still covered in dust and debris from the day's shift. At least two of the group were struggling to hold back tears. In no mood to mess around, Ellison asked the men to explain exactly what was going on. They all looked sheepishly toward each other, as if they didn't quite know what they were going to say to him, until finally Mike began to speak. The 28-year-old Mike was an independent contractor and the crew were his responsibility. So too, ultimately, was the man who was missing. His name was Travis Walton, who also happened to be Mike's best friend. Ordinarily, 
they would never have left him behind up there in the forest. But as Mike tried to explain to Ellison, these were far from ordinary circumstances. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean Smith. Like the rest of Mike Rogers' crew, 22-year-old Travis Walton lived in Snowflake, a farming town located about 30 miles east of Haber. With a population of just over 2,500, it was founded by Mormon settlers in 1878 and was comprised largely of low-rise houses and small local stores, all overshadowed by the huge, red-bricked Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that dominated the town square. Delinquency was not looked on lightly by the community, nor was anyone who deigned to be a little different. Back in 1971, Travis, who, with his long hair, was dismissed by many as a feckless hippie, and a friend were convicted of forging payroll checks from a local company. The pair were given two years probation and forced to pay the money back. In a town as small and God-fearing as Snowflake, such reputations were hard to shake. Those who knew Travis, however, knew a different story. Some of his school teachers even considered him one of the smartest pupils that they'd ever taught. After dropping out of Northern Arizona University a few years previously, Travis had been picking up work wherever he could find it. When Mike Rogers, a forestry contractor with nine years' experience, procured another of his United States Forest Service contracts, Travis jumped at the opportunity to join the team. The job was to clear 1,277 acres of thick scrub brush from a section of the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest, known as Turkey Springs, which was about 10 miles into the pine-covered mountains just to the west of Haber. That Wednesday, November 5th, started out just like any other day, as one by one, Rogers collected each of his crew members in his battered Crew Cab International from their homes in Snowflake, then headed off on their 40-mile journey into the mountains. With it being November, there was always a slight chill in the air first thing in the morning, but it soon heated up when the sun came out. Though the work was arduous, cutting back all new growth less than six inches in diameter and gathering it up into great slash piles. Travis never tired of being up there on that mountain ridge. With the fresh air in his lungs, wild horses galloping through the trees all around them, and that ancient forest stretching out below, older than the people whose name it took, older even than God themselves. Hours later, with darkness returning, and so too that light chill in the air, the men called it a day. Gathering their tools, they slung them into the back of Mike's truck before piling in themselves, Travis and Kenny up front with Mike, while the others, all smokers, sat in the back, gleefully lighting up. Mike switched on the engine, bathing the narrow forest road ahead, in the light of the headlamps and eased out of the clearing. 
They'd barely made it 200 yards along the rugged forest track when Alan broke in from the back. Hey, what is that, he said, pointing toward a soft glowing light coming from out of the trees to the right. Have you guys never seen the moon, mocked Kenny. Only, as the others were quick to point out, the moon was already sitting high in the sky above, on the other side of the truck. The soft white glow grew brighter as they continued on slowly, edging ever closer toward it. Now, no more than a hundred yards from its source, the light bled out across the road before them, but frustratingly, whatever it was, remained obscured by the trees, until eventually they reached a clearing, and they were finally able to see it. A large disc-like structure, roughly 20 feet wide and 8 feet high, hovering a good 15 feet above the ground. It was so close, they could even see the detail on its surface, how it was divided into a series of thin panels, with a thin, darker band that seemed to circle all the way around it, and how its glow appeared to be coming from inside. Before Mike had even brought the truck to a stop, the side door was opened and Travis was gone, hurrying off toward it. The others yelled for him to come back, but Travis just kept on going, edging closer and closer toward it. Then came a strange noise that seemed to emanate from the craft. High-pitched at first, before steadily shifting into something much lower, like a vast turbine engine. When suddenly, a blinding blue light shot out from the disc, holding Travis in some kind of grip. With his body now completely rigid, he was slowly lifted a good foot into the air and suspended there for a moment before being flung hard onto the ground, skidding shoulder first into the stone and dirt. And there he lay, completely still. That was enough for Rogers, who, with four kids of his own and the rest of his crew to worry about, turned the key and tore out of the clearing as fast as the truck could go. And then they were racing through the trees, bouncing over the dirt track at speed, as Rogers did his best to keep the thing on the road, with the rest of the crew screaming for him to keep going, faster and faster, until it was just one bend too many. With a huge pine tree looming up before him, Rogers pulled hard on the wheel and brought the truck slamming into a pile of bulldozed dirt by the side of the road. The men looked frantically about for any sign of the strange craft, but saw nothing but the frigid dark and the bright half-moon above, and for a moment there was silence. And then all hell broke loose. We've got to go back, yelled Kenny. No way, said Steve, as tears streamed down his face. We've got to get out of here. Kenny's right, said Mike, wiping his eyes with the back of his hand. Only then had it dawned on him that, without even thinking, he'd abandoned his best friend alone out there with that thing, whatever it was. We're going back, he said finally. You can either come with me, or you can wait for me here. With no one willing to take their chances in the forest alone, they headed back to look for Travis. But by the time they got to where they'd last seen him, 
he was gone. And that, as he finished explaining to an utterly perplexed Deputy Ellison, was when they decided to call the police. After hearing the men's story, Deputy Ellison reluctantly relayed it back to Sheriff Marlon Gillespie at the Navajo County Sheriff's Office in Holbrook, another 40-mile drive north of Haber. Though Ellison was quick to clarify that he didn't believe any of it, he had little doubt the men had experienced something traumatic. Less than an hour later, Sheriff Gillespie arrived with Deputy Kenneth Copland in tow, and Mike's crew repeated their extraordinary story for the second time that night. But Mike was getting impatient. They needed to get back up there and search for Travis. Kenny and Alan were keen to join, but by then, all John, Dwayne and Steve, who at 17 was the youngest of the group, wanted to do was go home. Taking Mike's truck, they headed back to his house to let his wife know what had happened while the remaining three joined the sheriff and his two deputies and headed back toward Turkey Springs. It took a while to find the exact spot again, but soon the men were out in the cold air, flashlights in hand, as they scoured the ground for any sign of Travis. But the men found nothing. No scarred or broken trees other than the ones the team had cut down, no scuff marks in the dirt, no sign of Travis's boot markings. Neither did they find any pieces of clothing, or any blood for that matter. It was almost as if no one had ever been there at all. All that was clear was that Travis was gone. Sheriff Gillespie eyed Mike and his men with suspicion. Clearly, Travis hadn't been abducted by a UFO, so what then exactly had taken place. And if he was still alive out here, as the men claimed he might be, it was an awfully cold night to only be wearing plaid and denim. Ellison notified more deputies and members of a local volunteer organisation to join in the search. But by midnight, there was still no sign of the missing man. Growing increasingly desperate, Rogers suggested it was time they notified Travis's mother. At 57 years old, Mary Kellett had raised Travis and his five siblings on her own. After making a living running a boarding house in Phoenix, by 1975, she divided her time between her home in Snowflake and a cabin in Bear Springs, a stretch of woodland a good ten miles to the southeast of Haber. It was funny, she thought, as she watched Deputy Copland's car pulling up outside the cabin. Just earlier in the day, she'd been overcome with the strange conviction that something terrible had happened to her son, Travis. When Mike stepped out of the vehicle, whom she knew well as a good friend of Travis's, her worst fears were confirmed. Once inside, Coplin watched as a clearly distraught Rogers explained to Mary about what they'd seen that evening and how Travis had disappeared. It was odd, thought Coplin, how calm Mary seemed to be in the face of such unusual and disturbing news. 
almost as if it wasn't news to her at all. About an hour later, Coplin made his goodbyes and headed back to Sheriff Gillespie to report his findings. In the meantime, Rogers drove Mary in her car to her daughter Alison's home in Taylor, a town just south of Snowflake. Alison, who lived with her husband, Grant Neff, was especially close to Travis and was understandably devastated to hear the news. Skeptical of the story, however, she demanded to hear again from Mike exactly what had happened, but he could only tell her what he knew. A few hours later, unable to wait any longer, Mary called her son Dwayne at his home in Phoenix to give him the worrying news. Though Dwayne was Mary's second oldest son, she'd always considered him the most mature, and it was often to him that she first turned in times of stress. Minutes later, Dwayne jumped into his car and started out on the 200-mile journey to Snowflake to meet up with the others. Are you always taking care of your family? Do you often take care of others and not yourself? Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. You deserve it. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best, to feeling like yourself again. With Teladoc, you can speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video. Therapy appointments are available seven days a week from 7am to 9pm local time. If you feel overwhelmed sometimes, maybe you feel stressed or anxious, depressed or lonely, or you might be struggling with a personal or family issue, Teladoc can help. Teladoc is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy to change counsellors if needed, for free. Teladoc Therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C dot com slash unexplained podcast. At 8am, the morning after Travis's disappearance, a number of search teams assembled in Turkey Springs to assist the Navajo County and Silver Creek Sheriff's officers in their continued search for the missing man. Among them were a group of US Forest Service personnel, drafted in for their knowledge of the local area. Mike Rogers, Kenny Peterson and Alan Dallas were back too to help with the search. That morning, the 30 or so search team, starting from the point that Travis was last seen, began the laborious task of scouring the forest for any sign of him, a search that would eventually encompass a region of roughly a mile squared. As the forestry workers scoured the area for any sign of unusually broken trees or foot markings, it was hard to ignore just how dry the whole area was, with some of the dead brush piles being almost a year old and the floor carpeted in dry pine needles. Though no one gave it much credence, if some kind of craft had indeed lifted off from around there, the whole place would have gone up in flames. Elsewhere, Sheriff Gillespie and Deputy Ellison were looking for something a little different. Trying to square the obvious distress shown by Mike and his crew the previous night, With the ridiculous cock-and-bull story they had given them, Gillespie and Ellison had got to thinking. Could it be 
whether it was premeditated or the result of a tragic accident, that the men knew only too well where Travis was after all, because they had buried his body. As the two police kept one eye on the men for any sign of suspicious activity, their other was kept firmly on the ground, looking for any sign of recently disturbed earth or fresh piles of dirt. And of course, blood. Later that afternoon, Mary and Duane also joined the search, with Mary seeming once again far too calm for Deputy Copland's liking. By the afternoon, however, the search teams were yet to find anything. With little else to go on, Sheriff Gillespie suggested contacting the nearest firewatch tower. Perhaps they had seen something that night. At the very least, it would end all the ridiculous talk about UFOs. Sadly, however, the guard stationed at the tower, only a few miles to the west, had gone off duty at 5pm. The search continued the next day, this time with the help of search dogs from Arizona State Prison. But still, no evidence of Travis's whereabouts or any sign that any unidentified flying object had been in the vicinity was found. On Saturday morning, Gillespie was back in his office in Holbrook when a kerfuffle was heard in the reception. Running through, he was startled to find Dwayne and Mike Rogers demanding to know why no one was up on the ridge looking for Travis. The pair had gone out to join the third day of the search, only to find nobody there. Having begun to suspect that some kind of hoax was being played out, Gillespie was somewhat taken aback by the evident concern and passion in Dwayne and Mike's demand. Within an hour, the search was reinstated, with horses, jeeps and a rescue helicopter brought in for good measure. Having flown in helicopters during his time in the military, that afternoon, Dwayne joined the helicopter crew in the air, peering down at the gaps in between the trees for any sign of his brother. He couldn't decide whether to be worried or relieved when, by the end of the day, they'd once again failed to find anything. Back in Snowflake, a Volkswagen van pulled into the town square to join the throng of news vans and other unfamiliar vehicles that had been steadily descending on the town. By then, news of Travis's disappearance and the unusual explanation behind it had spread far and wide, with many journalists and UFO enthusiasts keen to investigate the wild story for themselves. One such enthusiast was Fred Sylvanus from Phoenix, who for the past 20 years had conducted field research for the Arizona Regional UFO Project. That afternoon, Fred was put in touch with Mike and Dwayne, who agreed to join him in his van for an interview. Mike began with an account of the craft they'd seen, how pretty it had been, like a fancy new car, he said, and how he'd been almost mesmerised by just how beautiful a thing it was to look at. Then Dwayne chimed in with something unexpected. He had also seen one almost identical to what Mike described in broad daylight 12 years before. Not only that, 
he and Travis had discussed UFOs at great length and what they would do if they ever got close to one. Which was what? asked Fred. They would try to establish contact with it, of course, came Duane's reply. It was an alarming admission to Sylvanus, since he was previously under the impression that none of the men involved had any prior interest in UFOs. In his experienced opinion, evidence of such interest was often a red flag where stories of apparent sightings and abductions were concerned. And then came another troubling revelation, this time from Mike. As it turned out, he and his crew were wildly behind schedule on their contract. Having already received one extension, the crew were struggling to meet their second deadline. As Mike let slip to Sylvanus, perhaps with all that had been going on, the forestry service might be willing to offer them a second extension. There was just one final question, said Sylvanus, before wrapping up. Where did the pair think that Travis was now? Wherever he is, said Duane, it is not on this earth. Many in the town had been uttering it among themselves, but it was Snowflake Town Marshal, Sanford Flake, who said it the loudest, that all this talk of UFOs and Travis Walton being abducted was complete rubbish. Some put this down to an ongoing grudge with Travis, due to a disagreement from a previous year. But either way, Flake was determined to put an end to the nonsense. Having deduced that Travis had orchestrated the whole thing in collaboration with his brother Dwayne, using some kind of balloon to fool his colleagues, Flake became convinced that he was merely hiding out at his mother's cabin in Bear Lake. In the days since Travis's disappearance, Marshal Flake made a number of unannounced visits to Mary Kellett's cabin, hoping to catch the family out. One time, even bringing a documentary crew with him from the United Kingdom. But Mary could only tell him what she had told everyone else, that she had no idea where her son was. Such rumours were becoming a struggle for the rest of Mike's crew too, who couldn't step outside their homes without being harassed by reporters or neighbours telling them to give up the hoax and tell the truth about what happened. On Monday morning, with Travis now having been missing for five days, Mike Rogers, Kenny Peterson, John Goulet, Steve Pearce, Alan Dallas and Dwayne Smith received an ominous request to assemble at Sheriff Gillespie's office in Holbrook. The men arrived on the assumption that they would be giving another statement about the events of the previous Wednesday. What they found was something a little different. Greeting them, alongside Gillespie, was Arizona Department of Public Safety employee, Cy Gilson. Gilson also happened to be an expert in polygraph testing, and he was there to give them a lie detector test. Steve Pierce went white at the sheer mention of the device, It was just as his mother had been telling him. It didn't matter if he had anything to do with Travis's disappearance. This was how the law really worked. They were going to try and pin something on him, and one way or another, if Steve wasn't careful, he would not be leaving that station any time soon. 
Alan Dallas also grew suddenly nervous, a reaction not lost on Sheriff Gillespie. As the sheriff then explained to them, since they had no evidence to back up any of their claims, he'd been forced to take drastic action. If they couldn't find Travis, at the very least, he could dismiss their ridiculous story. And if they were telling the truth, none of them had anything to worry about anyway. Having been observing the men closely since they arrived, Gilson was quick to pick out Steve, the youngest and clearly most anxious of the group, as a possible weak link. If they had indeed concocted the whole thing up together, it was Steve, he reasoned, that was most likely to break. Alone in the interview room, Gilson took a moment to calibrate the equipment, then asked for Steve to be sent in. After nervously taking a seat, Gilson proceeded to connect Steve to the machine, pulling the wires tightly across his chest, before asking him to sit up and try his best to relax. And then, after switching on the machine, Gilson began. Did you cause Travis any serious physical harm last Wednesday afternoon? asked Gilson as the graph paper spooled out endlessly under the needles. No, said Steve quickly, looking anxiously toward the fragile arms of the machine as they flickered lightly across the page. Gilson nodded to himself, then jotted something down in his notebook. I'm not lying, said Steve with quiet determination. Ignoring him, Gilson continued. Do you know if Travis Walton was physically injured by some other member of your work crew last Wednesday? No, said Steve, emphatically. And then, do you know if Travis Walton's body is buried or hidden somewhere in the Turkey Springs area? No, came Steve's emphatic reply again. Then finally, did you tell the truth about actually seeing a UFO last Wednesday when Travis Walton disappeared. Steve looked Gilson in the eye and then, after only a moment's pause, yes, he said. One after the other, Mike's crew came and gave their answers to the same set of questions, taking about 20 minutes at a time as they went over and over it again all giving the exact same answers as Steve and not once deviating from their story. No, they didn't harm Travis, nor know of anyone who did, and yes, they did see a UFO that night. At 10pm that evening, the men were sent home, after which Gilson presented Gillespie with the results. The sheriff could only gawp in amazement. According to Gilson... Not one of the men, with the exception of Alan Dallas, whose results were deemed void, could be determined to have lied about their experience. Or, as Gilson understood it, going by the results, the chances that all five had cheated the test was something in the region of 1 in 78,000. As Gillespie reported to the press soon after, there's no doubt they're telling the truth right down the line I feel sure that all six of them saw a UFO.
It was close to midnight on Monday when the phone rang in Alison and Grant Neff's home in Taylor. Having just gone to bed, Grant roused himself awake and stumbled to the receiver. Neff residence, who's this? he muttered wearily. Then a scared and faint voice crackled up from the other end of the line. It's Travis. I'm in a phone booth at the Heber gas station. I need help. Please come and get me. Grant stood for a moment trying to think. It certainly didn't sound like Travis, and since the family had been fielding crank calls ever since his disappearance, it seemed reasonable to assume that this was just another one. Don't call here again, Grant said. But just as he was about to hang up, the voice came back, more desperate this time. Wait, Grant, it's me. Please, I'm hurt and I need your help. Please, come and get me. You've been listening to part one of Unexplained's season four, episode 20, The Homecoming. Part two will be released next Friday, December 6th. Unexplained, the book and audiobook featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean-Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast. Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best. Speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video anytime between 7am to 9pm local time, seven days a week. Teladoc therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C dot com slash unexplained podcast. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 
I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.